The latter denounced the film as an act of war. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks skid on China's manufacturing data and domestic retail woes. Hong Kong retail sales rose as the iPhone outweighed Occupy protests. And Shinzo Abe has begun his election bid as economic gains are overshadowed by recession. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll have a look at uh, what China's cooling manufacturing activity means for the outlook. And joining for us for that discussion is Uwe Parpart of the Reorient Group. Samson Lee of Thomson Reuters will talk talk about the outlook for gold and other precious metals in the wake of this past weekend's referendum in Switzerland that voted down a proposal requiring the central bank to increase gold reserves. Vandana Hari of Platts in Singapore will join us by phone to talk about the dramatic deflation in crude oil prices post the OPEC meeting. And Andrew Sullivan joins us as guest host this morning. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Let's look at today's top stories, uh, mounting signs of weakness in the global economy and a poor start to the holiday shopping season knocked the stock market lower yesterday. New reports of slowing manufacturing in China as well as in the three largest economies that use the European currency, that's Germany, France and Italy, also gave investors little reason to cheer. The S&P 500 index fell 14 points to close at 2,053. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped 51 points to 17,776, while the Nasdaq Composite fell 64 points to 4,727. Gold was little changed at uh, 12.12, that's uh, $1,202 per ounce, and the yen is trading at 118 per dollar, while Japanese futures are down after Moody's cut the country's credit rating. Andrew, what do you make of the market's news this morning? Well, I think the key thing is that you know, markets have been trading at highs. We have to remember that. Uh, and there's been very little uh, positive news out recently. So, you know, there, there's a lot of caution out there. You know, people have been riding momentum. But now I think a little bit of fundamentalism is coming back into play. All right. Well, retail sales in Hong Kong were up 1.4% in October from a year earlier to just over $38 billion. But the rise was well down on September when shop sales gained nearly 5% year on year. And for the first 10 months of this year, sales were down a fifth of a percent over the same period last year. A government spokesperson noted that the sale of items is closely related to local consumption was lackluster in October. This conceivably reflects the adverse impacts of the Occupy movement on consumer sentiment. What do you think, Andrew? Well, I think the, the key thing is that you know, Occupy Central has been very much um, focused on you know, office rather than retail. And uh, we're still seeing a good number of retail coming, people coming through. People still need to build, you know, buy things as they come through. But I think fundamentally we're seeing a change in the Chinese consumer. You know, if you think back three or four years ago, the Chinese could only come here on a, on a permit and, and those were very hard to come by. So they used to buy a lot of things for, for their friends and their family and related family. Now, you know, permits are much more easily accessible. So people are buying less but coming more frequently. And I think that's what probably the data shows. 
But uh, in terms of the areas around Mong Kok, you know, the affected areas, uh, do you think they have seen sort of a, a significant impact? Well, I think the impact has probably been more on, you know, local consumption rather than, you know, international consumption. So people like Sasa, who, you know, sell, you know, cosmetic goods, which have been very short supply in the in China mainland, you know, they're, they're still going to see people coming through and buying those. But for people that sell, you know, newspapers, food, yes, then I think the Mong Kok protest and similarly in Causeway Bay, they have been affected. Well, China's economy continued to weaken in November. Manufacturing fell to an eight-month low as factory shutdowns aggravated the pullback in the economy. The government's uh, purchasing managers index came in at 50.3 last month, uh, lower than the 50.8 recorded in October. And it's, that has been the weakest reading since March. A figure above 50 indicates economic expansion. Kit Jux is a global strategist at Societe Generale in London. He expects that uh, we'll see further easing from China quite soon. It won't take much longer before we get, get the next leg of it. You know, the economy is slowing steadily. Uh, on a marginal positive, they're one of the world's big oil importers, so those cheap oil prices benefit China pretty unequivocally, so uh, th that helps a bit. But, uh, yeah, you know, if, if they want to have 7% growth, they're, they're going to have an awful lot of easing. They still won't get 7% growth, but there's a path that's now pretty clear. Kidd is also worried about weakness in China's currency. The, the currency is overvalued by most terms. I mean, the currency in real terms has appreciated a huge amount. If you look at, uh, at obviously, um, what's been happening to some of the other currencies around it, particularly the yen most recently, I, I, I don't know how much the Chinese authorities would like to be the fall guys in a, a global currency war where they just have the currency that goes on strengthening uh, and making them less competitive, importing disinflation when they haven't got much inflation, hardly any inflation, uh, and want uh, and want to help their economy. They want to rebalance the economy away from exports, so they don't want a, a weak currency. And politically, you know, kind of a 30% devaluation um, that, that might really help their exporters is just inconceivable. But um, they, are, they are the people who are going to end this year with the strongest currency. Uh, and I'm not sure that that's what they particularly want. All right, let's bring in Uwe Parpart, who is the Managing Director and Head of Research at the Reorient Group. Good morning, Uwe. Yeah, good morning. So, Uwe, what do you make of uh, Kit Jux's comments about China's weak currency? Well, uh, in uh, normal effective uh, terms, uh, the, uh, the actual appreciation of the uh, Chinese currency has been quite substantial in uh, and, um, you know, obviously that has a uh, certain impact on exports. But uh, I think in the overall context of uh, Chinese reforms and the uh, advent of the new uh, uh, Chinese economy, as signified by Alibaba, Tencent-related uh, financial uh, institutions, etc., uh, that, that's not really a concern. So... Uh, I don't think China will uh, make any effort to uh, uh, depreciate uh, the currency. I think uh, thought to that effect, uh, I, I completely disagree with. Uh, so uh, as far as the current uh, apparent uh, weakness of the economy is concerned, uh, you know, take a look at any economy that uh, for 10 days of a month uh, actually shuts down uh, major areas of its uh, manufacturing industries as China did around the APEC summit, uh, and, uh, you know, you'd probably expect a much bigger uh, 
break-in on the PNI, PMI than actually occurred. Uh, Andrew, do you agree? Well, I think the key thing here is, uh, you know, is the fact that, yes, China's economy isn't doing so well. Exports are you know, coming up against more competition especially from Japan, which has always been a major competitor anyway. And I think the big, the big risk is the fact that other economies look to you know, weaken their currency as well in order to be competitive. But to Uwe's comment of you know, factories closing down for close to 10 days uh, around the time of the APEC summit, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, as he says, that's obviously going to have an impact, and, and that should have been expected. So you know, if you looked at the market reaction, it was probably a slightly overreaction on the basis that they already knew that impact. Information. I think that really tells you is the fact that people are actually very worried uh, at the levels that markets are currently trading at. Uwe, what do you think? Should we have known that and factored that into uh, our market expectations? Uh, yeah, we should have known it, and we we actually uh, our our group, uh, you know, actually uh, said exactly what would happen. So uh, I, I can't. For the life of me, understand how you can look at such a shutdown and Beijing is the major area of economic activity in China uh, and, and, and not expect it. So um, I think the important thing is to look at the uh, longer term. Uh, there, we've seen some uh, monetary easing. We, we expect that to continue by at least another uh, half a percentage point uh, over the next couple of months. Uh, we also expect a cut in the uh, uh, so-called triple R, the uh, uh, reserve requirements of the banks. Uh, and, uh, of course, the cheaper oil itself is a major easing factor for uh, for China, which uh, will help profitability, uh, profitability in turn help the stock market. So uh, we're, we're not particularly concerned about the uh, path of the Chinese economy at this point. The longer term uh, looks very positive to us. Uh, we are looking at a situation where profitability of major industries uh, will uh, definitely increase and where in particular the uh, service industry will play a much larger role in the Chinese economy and uh, help uh, profitability greatly. Uh, so the stock market really is at the beginning of a significant takeoff as far as we can see. And Uwe, do you expect the PBOC to uh, cut rates again fairly soon? Uh, yes, we do. Uh, we, uh, it could come as early as uh, the uh, uh, you know, period around the, uh, the new year, uh, the, uh, not the Chinese new year, but the, uh, the actual uh, new year and the end of December, early January. And uh, that would be logical to some extent because this will definitely be discussed at the uh, Central Economic Work Conference, which will uh, convene probably in about 10 days' time. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Uwe Parpart. He is the Managing Director and Head of Research at the Reorient Group. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I want. The time is now 8.14 a.m. And a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down six-tenths of a percent to 17,477. Australia's uh, ASX index is up. 
six-tenth of a percent to 5,222, and Seoul's Kospi is down a quarter of a percent to 1,960. Well, the price of oil has also rebounded after hitting a five-year low last week. Crude rose over 3% to $72.54 a barrel, which was the biggest gain in over a year. Now, OPEC has said that it wants the market to reduce the global oil glut, but the question is whether the market is really up to this. Catherine Spector is the head of commodity strategy at CIBC World Markets, and she discusses what OPEC actually means by this. I think what they mean by that is that they want to see what effect this lower price has on both supply and demand. Because a lot has changed in, in the oil balance really just in the last five years. So it's very hard to compare what's going on now to what's happened historically. We just don't have the data points. So I think what OPEC would like to see is what does this lower price for some period of time do to this production growth that we've seen in the U.S.? What does it do to some of the other OPEC members and in terms of their attitude for, for future compliance? And also what does it due to oil demand and and economic growth. So what does this actually mean for countries like Russia or China, which wants to actually increase emergency stockpiles? And they actually have been uh, for for over a year now. They they actually have built quite a lot of inventory. And a lot of people think that this low price will will be a signal that that it's a good time to continue, right? You you buy when it's cheap. So while that's not exactly the same thing as oil demand, it would behave sort of the same way in the market. And we might also see actual oil demand get a boost from this lower price. There are oil producers that are in worse shape in terms of their, uh, their cash on hand, right? So Russia actually has more than than a country like Venezuela, say. Also, because the U.S. dollar has strengthened so much and oil's denominated in dollars, in a way that that shields a country like Russia a little bit, that currency effect shields them a bit from this price decline. All right, let's bring in Vandana Hari, who is the Asia Editorial Director of Platts. She joins us by phone from Singapore. Good morning, Vandana. Good morning. So, Vandana, what kind of message did last week's OPEC decision signal to the world? A completely new era, as uh, far as uh, I interpret it. Uh, what the, what the uh, OPEC meeting um, ended up t- uh, signa- signaling to the markets is that OPEC is no longer going to play a balancing role. Um, it's not going to be the big daddy, if you will, uh, making sure any extra oil is mopped up. Um, it's being widely interpreted as a, f- uh, a face-off, basically, between OPEC and the tight oil producers in the U.S. So personally, I think the pain is going to be spread evenly between the high-cost producers in the U.S. as well as outside. There are quite a few within OPEC, um, even outside OPEC and outside the U.S. Countries like um, Russia, for instance, as you just mentioned, is suffering quite a lot. Um, In short, um, it was uh, a very... uh, bearish signal for the markets because uh, we are now probably entering 2015 with anywhere between one to two million barrels per day of excess supply over and above uh, the projected demand. So Vandana, okay, so a bearish situation for producers, a bearish situation for the markets, yet the price of oil rebounded overnight. Why, Why did that happen? Uh, a small uptick, I wouldn't uh, call it a rebound. Uh, if you look at the total uh, losses, it's been skidding at almost 37% from 
uh, the mid-June highs of 115 uh, for Brent. This, what we saw overnight, could have been uh, some bargain hunting, could have been some short covering. I would be extremely surprised uh, to see um, prices, uh, that the current levels becoming a support and prices continuing to go up. I think they have some more way still to go down before they find a flaw. Andrew, your thoughts on that? Well, I think the key thing for Asia is the fact that certainly for economies that are importing oil, this has been very good. But, you know, you look at Japan, which is trying to uh, spur inflation. Obviously, the drop in the oil price is going to hurt Abe's, uh, you know, actions there because it's going to mean that, you know, he gets a little bit of deflation coming through. But for countries like India and Indonesia and Malaysia, who have been... uh, have in the past had uh, subsidies on oil, this is going to be a big boost for them, certainly a big boost for the governments because it means they have to spend less. So that's positive. But I I agree, I think in the longer term, you know, the the reality is that OPEC is no longer, as you were saying, prepared to be the balancer of the global supply. And to an extent, you know, shale oil in the US has been a a huge beneficiary of oil being at $100. And you know, going down the line, it's going to mean that banks that have lent these companies money on the basis of boil, oil being at $100 are going to suffer because some of those loans are going to come into, you know, dodgy territory. So, uh, Vandana, uh, if oil prices are indeed going to perhaps go lower, how low do you think they can go? A million-dollar question, yeah. as always. Um, I, I think they have to basically... It's very difficult for anybody to say at this point because nobody knows... We, we, nobody can last remember when uh, OPEC allowed market forces to balance supply and demand to balance prices. Also, if we are in a completely new era, a lot of people have been trying to figure out what, what, where is the pain point for the tight oil producers in the U.S. And what they came up with was really not very conclusive because you find an, a whole range from uh, some tight oil being produced for as little as uh, maybe $40 a barrel to the expense of the marginal barrel being uh, close to 110. Um, what I suspect is, is going to happen uh, going into 2015, uh, this, this juggernaut of tight oil is not certainly not going to come to a screeching halt. Uh, a lot of the U.S. independent producers have all, also hedged themselves, which offers them a, a, a protection against uh, uh, the free fall of oil prices. So we'll probably continue seeing growth in U.S. oil production. Some are suggesting that it will not be as uh, much, maybe so instead of another 1 million barrels per day of addition, it might just be seven to 800,000 barrels per day. But nonetheless, 2015 will continue into, is expected to continue uh, into an oversupply mode. Uh, we might start seeing some cutback in, in production. It will really depend on uh, who blinks first. Uh, and some cutback in production possibly towards the end of 2015 and, and 2016. So if we are going into an oversupply situation in 2015, um, expect prices to continue uh, sliding a little bit. They'll probably not be in as much of a free fall. It's going to be, I suspect, uh, easing from, from here uh, because this is going to be a very slow, gradual balancing process. I, I think one of the other things you have to bear in mind is that certainly for people like Saudi Arabia, you know, their lifting cost of oil is historic. So they can afford oil to be at like $40 
and and they will still make money. So for the new producers that were were you know making their budgets as as we were saying there at $100, that is going to squeeze them out of the market unless oil demand increases significantly. And, and I don't think we're going to see that in the, in the, in a context of a global slowdown. So uh, Mohammed El Aryan of Allianz uh, had an interesting point that he wrote in a note uh, to Bloomberg yesterday. He said uh, to, to quote him, he said the net impact overall uh, the net impact overall of this year's 28% plunge in oil is positive for the global economy, but it isn't universal and it comes with negative dimensions that need to be understood." End quote. So uh, last question Vandana, what are the risks? of lower oil prices geopolitically? Oh, huge, huge. Um, right now, so before we go to, to geopolitics, uh, I think the single biggest uh, threat that a sustained low price environment poses is lack of uh, inadequate investment in upstream in developing and finding oil and gas reserves. That is already starting to happen. So while the markets might be focused more short term, seeing who is shutting in the, produ- the, the producing barrel, which is not happening, uh, companies are certainly paring down uh, their uh, investments in, in uh, uh, ENP, uh, exploration and production activities. So what this could uh, uh, land us in is a situation similar to what we found ourselves in in the run-up to the 2008 uh, spike in prices. Basically, when demand starts recovering, and ultimately it has to, no, you know, you could be as pessimistic as you like about the European uh, economy, but it has, to, it has to come back up at some point. Uh, the same goes for emerging markets. In fact, emerging market oil demand might recover uh, also a little bit faster, the growth rates, as a result of the low oil prices. All right. Now, when that happens and you have just not enough oil production because not enough has been invested into finding and developing additional reserves, you could be in a high oil price environment once again. So thank, thank you. setting ourselves up for a cycle. Thanks, Vandana. It's a really interesting stuff. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you for joining us this morning. That is Vandana Hari, the Asia Editorial Director of Platts from Singapore. Well, Brent crude is currently at $72.54. Gold is at $1,205.50 per ounce. And in currencies, the euro is trading at 1.24 US dollars and the pound sterling is trading at 12 Hong Kong dollars and 20 cents. Well, switching gears, it's, uh, we could call this Commodities Tuesday uh, because we're going to switch gear from oil to gold. The price of gold has reclaimed the 1200 US dollar level for the first time since late October. The surge was spurred in part by a downgrade of Japan's sovereign debt rating and a retreat in the US dollar. Now, gold, of course, is a safe haven asset. It jumped 3.6%, more than 42 $2 an ounce to settle at just $1,218 an ounce. It earlier fell below the $1,150 level after voters in Switzerland rejected a measure that would have required the country's central bank to ramp up its gold reserves. Let's bring in Samson Lee, um, Thomson Reuters a Precious Metals Senior Analyst. Good morning, Samson. Good morning. So, Samson, gold prices are teetering on the edge of a violent smackdown. Um, you know, yet you say that 
even if the Swiss referendum voted a yes, it wouldn't impact gold prices in the long run. Can you tell us why? Uh, yes, because I think all along um, the Swiss vote is uh, more affecting the psychologically and uh, affecting the short covering activities at the futures market rather than really impacting the supply and demand of the gold. Uh, because uh, even if the vote was yes, and the Swiss National Bank have to purchase, let's say, a thousand and five hundred tons of gold in five years' time. That equals to about three hundred tons per year. So, how much is three hundred tons of gold actually? Um, based on last year, global world um, global gold production is something more, little bit more than three thousand tons per annum. So that means 300 tons is just slightly about 10 to 11 percent of annual global production, which we think um, the market can actually absorb this uh, extra demand from the Swiss National Bank. Um, but surely, I mean, hmm. that, that, that makes it sounds like uh, we're only depending upon the Swiss National Bank to actually buy gold. That's not the case, right? Uh, no, that's the case because, um, of course, even uh, the Swiss National Bank could be the first uh, central bank and may, there may be other central banks to follow suit, but we are not seeing that to happen because, as we all know, central bankers, uh, they all would prefer flexibility in terms of managing the country's balance sheet and uh, doing something what the Swiss, some Swiss were trying to do is something like more going back to the gold standard, which will limit um, the way and the methods that the central bankers can use. So we think, um, like I said, um, by just like adding extra 10% demand of the annual global uh, supply, uh, mine production is just, I think um, the market can absorb this extra demand. Samson, and how much would you say the price of oil, you know, the falling prices of oil are actually affecting gold? Uh, right. Uh, I think the correlation between oil and gold price is not as high as people would have thought in the last maybe two to three years. Actually, the correlation is quite low. And, uh, all, uh, and the oil price, the correlation between the oil price and the U.S. equity market has been quite high instead. Um, so uh, I think... Uh, normally, the market would say, oh, um, the higher the oil price, then the gold price should follow suit because that means higher inflation. But it's not always the case. And in fact, I think if gold price falls further, say, uh, maybe be, uh, to between like 50 to $60 per, uh, per barrel, and it could potentially as negatively affect the U.S. economy because um, the, sh- the shell revolution in the U.S. have actually kicked start the U.S. economy and drag the economy out from the recession. Okay, we have just about 20 seconds left. Sure. So, Andrew, any parting thoughts on gold? Well, I'm just wondering whether, you know, Samson still sees gold as a, an inflation hedge and in a deflationary environment, whether that's part of the uh, downside. Samson, quick 20 seconds. Uh, we think uh, probably uh, gold will continue to uh, to, uh, to do bad uh, next year because we think uh, the, e- the U.S. is going to raise the interest rate and the U.S. dollar will remain to be strong. So uh, we think the gold price will consolidate for one more year, but uh, a slow boom may happen like uh, in the year 2016 due All to right. h- high inflation and other issues. Okay, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are out of time. That is Samson Lee, Thomson Reuters, a pressure, a pressure, Precious Metals 
Ooh, precious metals senior analyst. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. The Nikkei is down half a percent to 17,511. Australia's ASX index is up half a percent to 5,218. And Seoul's Kospi is down a quarter of a percent to 1,960. Thank you, Andrew Sullivan, for joining us as co-host this morning. Andrew always joins us on a Tuesday. So if there are any specific questions you would like... Uh, to uh, give to him, please do post them on our Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash money for nothing on RTHK Radio 3. This is Renita Malhotrahora wrapping up money for nothing for this morning. A quick look at the weather forecast before we part. It'll be cloudy and cool with a few rain patches. The temperature is currently 15 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 87%. Now it's time for the half hour news with Samantha Butler. The chairwoman of the Democratic Party, Emily Lau, says if pro-democracy protesters resort to violence, they'll lose the support of people who originally backed the Occupy movement. She was commenting on yesterday's clashes between demonstrators and police. Protesters have been holding peaceful blockades across Hong Kong since September, but are becoming frustrated at the lack of response from the government to their demands. Ms Lau told RTHK this morning that she hoped the Occupy movement would continue to spread its message. I think the movement will have to go on, maybe in some other shape or form. We have to tell the people more about why we have been doing it for so long and get the people's support. In fact, most Hong Kong people support democracy. They may not support this tactic, this strategy. So we have to go to the districts to tell them. And, of course, ultimately, we want to reform the political system. So for the young people who have been waking up, who have been energized, I hope they will form their political parties. The film studio Sony Pictures